And welcome to Western Kabuki, a very special episode in which we are honored to be joined by 2024 presidential candidate and best-selling author, activist. Uh, you guys know her, you love her, Marianne Williamson. Thank you for joining us. Marianne, how are you? I'm good, thank you, and thank you for having me. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. So I wanted to ask a little bit about your presidential candidacy. Um, what does the first 100 days of a Williamson administration look like? What is your plan in 2024? Well, the first thing we need to do is to um, cancel the Willow Project. And one of my main agenda items is to declare a climate emergency. And one of the core happenings during my administration will be a mass mobilization for a just transition from a dirty economy to a clean economy. So we will get that started right there with uh, canceling the Willow Project. I will also cancel all contracts that the government has with union busting companies. I will also uh, audit every center, uh, cent of the Pentagon, although I'm sure it will fail it once again. And I will get about work on the things that I told the American people I was going to do in these four years. We have an economic bill of rights, I will be working towards universal health care, tuition-free college and tech school. I will try to use the Higher Education Act to cancel all the college loan debts. I want subsidized child care. I want universal paid family leave. We want to have guaranteed sick pay and a guaranteed living wage. All of those things are an economic bill of rights uh, brought up to date, the one that originally um, Franklin Roosevelt wrote. And I will be working with members of Congress trying to put together the consortium of legislators who will help me put that through. I also want a Department of Peace, so we'll be getting to work on that. Uh, just as we have a military academy, we need to have a peace academy. We need a Department of Children and Youth. I will be convening the best minds in the United States on early childhood. 90% um, of the brain of a child is in that first five years. The old-fashioned conversation around education in this country really needs to be updated. By the time a child is five, so much trauma has occurred in the lives of so many. I need to, we need to talk about nutrition. We need to talk about all kinds of things, not even, you know, at birth, but even before in terms of in utero, we have a crisis with uh, premature babies, maternal deaths, particularly among black mothers and so forth. There will be an attention to children, my administration, which is very unique and different. And something else that I'm interested in, I don't know how much attention it will get in that first hundred days, but I think we need to end America's war on drugs. And that will be a, a major goal of mine because it, it's doing more harm than good. And the resources that we spend there could be much better put to use in actually solving the problem rather than what we do now, which is in many ways just exacerbating it. That's a really ambitious and a lot of like really great stuff that I mean I think we all in this in this call like really support. Um, what do you what do you say to the people that because as you know we've we've seen this since like Bernie Sanders ran in 2016 and then um, and in just pretty much every campaign cycle since then where where the media and like more centristy people are like oh it's like all a pipe dream you can't do any of this like what, what what do you say to people who would listen to what you just said and respond with that people are waking up to what a con that is uh in every other advanced democracy they have universal health care in every other advanced democracy they have tuition free college and tech school and these things are considered everything that i mentioned all of the issues that i mentioned 
with the Economic Bill of Rights or considered moderate positions in every other advanced democracy. And also when it comes to universal health care, when it comes to tuition-free college, the majority of Republicans as well as Democrats want them. So what's happened in this country is that we have been trained to expect too little. And people have been told, you know, you can't have those things. It's so complicated. When really the issue is not that it's complicated. The issue is that it's corrupt. As far as universal health care is concerned, we have Medicare. So we know Medicare can be done. So don't tell me that Medicare for all can't be done. As far as tuition-free college, we had it in this country until the 1970s. We had it at the University of Florida, University of California, University of Texas. So I think people are waking up and realizing that those are just the lies told us by a political establishment, which is predicated on the idea that as much money as possible needs to be kept in the hands of their donor class, even when that is at the expense of the safety and the health and the well-being of the American people. I'm going to win because of how many people get, you know, that's just BS. And it is time for us to to stand on what we know. Um, You've talked about the Department of Peace quite a bit, and that's an interesting concept to me. Can you tell me what that would look like in practice? Well, I think a lot of people don't realize that peace building is an actual thing. There is um, a, a, there are a set of skills, uh, a kind of expertise, uh, which is brought to bear in peace building. And there are four main factors. And when these factors are present in any system, it could be a corner of an American city or another corner of the world. When these four factors are present, there will be a higher incidence of peace and a lower incidence of violence. Number one, greater economic opportunities for women. Number two, greater educational opportunities for children. Number three, a reduction of violence against women. And number four, an amelioration of unnecessary human despair. So we need to look at peace and violence the way we now look at health and sickness. We know that sickness is the absence of peace and not the other way around. So we now know you have to proactively cultivate health, not just wait till you get sick and, you know, try to eradicate the symptoms or suppress the symptoms through external means. That's called the old allopathic model of healing. We have evolved beyond it, but we still take a very old allopathic, depend on the external remedies and only treat the symptoms approach to violence. We have to proactively create peace. And that you can only do, you can only wage peace when your concentration is on justice. Your concentration is on ameliorating human despair and you are coming from compassion. So just as we have a military academy, we need to have a peace academy. We train people uh, to effectuate war in in a meaningful and sophisticated way if that's necessary. That's what we do at a military academy. And we need to train people in a very sophisticated, effective way to wage peace at a peace academy. So then what we have to do, we have to imagine the planet without war in 100 years. You know, JFK said mankind will put an end to war or war will put an end to us. So we have to imagine a world without war, reverse engineer from there. And for the people who say that that's just naive, uh, I'd say that my belief is that what's naive is to assume we will still be uh, habiting this planet in another hundred years if we don't at least try. Um, you have mentioned uh, in the past, it's, this is not just a uh, 
a climate crisis, but this is a crisis of capitalism a couple times. So I guess my question would be, in your most idealistic worldview, is there room for both spirituality and capitalism? And uh, if so, what role does capitalism play or how is it managed or um, controlled? I think there's such thing as righteous profit. I'm, you know, I'm a writer. I make my living as a writer. So I know what the upside of the market can be. There's a win-win there. The writer puts in energy, extracts money. The, uh, the uh, publisher with the same, there's a putting in of money and in energy and then extracting of money. And then the consumer puts in money and extracts energy from the value of reading the book. Everybody wins. So there is such a thing as a capitalist ethically based uh, structure where everybody wins. The problem we have right now, of course, is that we have this form, this unfettered vulture strain of malfunctional capitalism in which stockholder value takes precedence over any other stakeholders, takes precedence over the workers, takes precedence over the community, takes precedence over safety and health, takes precedence over the environment. And so that to me is a strain of capitalism. I agree with Richard Wolff, Professor Wolf. You know, capitalism isn't a light switch that you turn off or on. I mean, these these are all fluid issues, but I look at the the hybrid situations in certain Scandinavian countries. There's certainly a lot of entrepreneurial, uh, free market activity. People certainly create wealth, but there is this minimum, you know, there's socialized principles that are applied. Uh, to make sure that, uh, in language that we would use here, the common good is protected, and that's what what I would see. What do you? What would you say to um, someone who is anti-capitalist who would argue that that's just inherently impossible to control under a uh, capitalist system? Because I mean, we've seen times and times again, like some politicians getting into power, trying to not, of course, do like full socialism like that. Like you can't just like do that individually as a politician, but like there's forces at play that will prevent, you know, like what you would call ethical capitalism. Well, a lot of that conversation is sort of theoretical to me. It's the kind of thing you have a bottle of wine and you're, you know, it's 1030 or 11 at night and you're hanging out at a restaurant and it's, it's academic to me. What I'm interested in is the fact that in actual practicality, public uh, policy after public policy is, does more to serve the short-term profit maximization of the donor class, including corporations, than it does to serve the safety and health and well-being of the American people. And that needs to stop. So that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in the actual in actual policies. Now, when you talk about the the um, uh, you know the challenges to a politician, absolutely there are challenges to a politician. But on the other hand, even though the president does not have a magic wand, and no president should have a magic wand, the president has a lot of power. The president, for instance, speaking of you know, vulture capitalism, we shouldn't have people from big ag capturing the agricultural department. We should not have people from big food capturing the uh, Food and Drug Administration. We should not have the Secretary of Defense being a former Raytheon board member. So that's where you take it beyond, beyond, you know, the academic, theoretical, almost like college-level conversation of, ooh, big food and, and it's capitalism. Yeah, we get that. We know that. But if we keep the conversation on that, I don't see where we 
I think that those are conversations that inform us and uh, give us a, a deeper analysis of what's happening. But I'm interested in actual political change. For sure. Um, so what do you think about the people? Um, there's there's always this discourse in every cycle, but it's it's coming on full full force right now for people who are disapproving of Biden, because I'm, I'm sure you've seen Biden's poll numbers have been like floundering since the the Israel invasion of Gaza a month ago. Um, what, what do you think about the people that would see dissatisfaction with Biden or people saying they don't want to vote for Biden and and those people saying that that's like throwing the country to fascism or like, yeah, just give, giving away the country, just trying to like disapprove of Biden is even just like enough for these people to get like pretty angry. Well, I agree with Franklin Roosevelt, who said that we would not have to worry about a fascist takeover in this country as long as democracy delivered on its promises. Now, the truth of the matter is fascism should never have gotten so close to the door. And it wouldn't have if if democracy had been delivering on its promises over the last few decades. Once again, every other advanced democracy has universal health care. We have one in four Americans living with medical debt, 18 million Americans who can't afford the medicine that their doctors prescribe to them. 68,000 people who die every year from lack of health care, 85 million who are underinsured or underinsured. These are the things that cause a threat uh, to our democratic society. The fact that democracy isn't delivering for people. Same with those college loan debts, same with the um, uh, the tuition for college and so forth. If you want to beat the fascists in 2024, you're not going to beat the fascists in 2024 by just trying to scare people that Trump is so bad. That worked in 2020, but I don't think that's going to be a winning card in 2024. What you have to do is actually offer people more. If democracy is not offering people a better life, then where do you get that they're supposed to be so excited about it? You know, every time somebody says to me, Marianne, how can you do this? Why are you running? Don't you realize that the fascists are at the door? Every time I say, I'm doing this because the fascists are at the door. And also the kind of people who say that to me, often I'll point out and I'll ask them a question. And I'm always right. I'll say, let me guess, you have health care, don't you? Let me guess, you can afford to send your kids to college, can't you? Let me guess, you, uh, let me guess, I would just be my guess you can live on just one job and I bet you make more than $15 an hour. People are delusional to think that people who are struggling to survive uh, are going to be in the mood to be scolded, that they're not appreciating enough that $35 an hour, if you're over, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, not $35 an hour, but if you're over 65, your insulin will be capped at 35. If we had universal health care, 1.3 million people would not be rationing their insulin. So the idea that all we have to do is tell people that Bidenomics is working and we want to just finish the job. And you couple that with, and I'm, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but somebody who clearly can't tell Britney Spears from Taylor Swift, uh, then we're going to have a very, very sorry night um, on Election Day in 2024. So we need to, uh, first of all, be very clear that the DNC has no right to determine the options 
um, that the uh, Democratic or Democratic-leaning voters have. This is very, very important. Yeah, because they're not even they're not even letting you guys debate. Oh my right? God, it's it's worse than that. You know, CNN and MSNBC they're like state TV at this point. Uh, Fox, you know, is a mouthpiece for the GOP, and CNN and MSNBC are like mouthpieces. I mean, just absolute lies. I mean, they'll talk about how the president only has one challenger, Dean Phillips. Um, before that, the president has no challenger, and um, that's because they feel entitled. To be the gatekeepers, uh, it's like something out of the old Soviet Union. You know, you 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 can make a choice, but we're going to tell you who your options are. I don't know how you save democracy by suppressing democracy, but you know, all this energy is coming up from the bottom of things. We're already in that period where you can almost feel the rumbling. You can feel the rumbling. It's an earthquake happening here, and it's going to blow, and it's going to blow in one direction or the other. It is either going to blow in the direction of greater democracy, greater justice, and a genuinely more sustainable and uh, enlightened, socially and economically enlightened future, or it's going to blow in the direction of dystopia and chaos and, you know, God help us, it could be, you know, it could be a real fascist, uh, fascist chapter in America. So this is not the moment to um, tell ourselves or believe it when others tell us that, no, it has to be Joe Biden because the DNC says so. So that goes really well into something I wanted to ask you about just sort of a lot of the central themes around your writing and, and your, your, your public speeches, um, where you talk about love and optimism and those sort of things. How do you find yourself keeping up with that optimism, knowing that there is this sort of, sort of Damocles over society of like coming reckoning like how do you personally be where do you find that optimism where do you find love for yourself where where, where do you see that well it's certainly the biggest challenge of all time in my life sure. because this system i have to tell you i thought i was appropriately skeptical it's hard to dwell within the belly of this beast and not become cynical you know, it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars just to get on the ballot in every state. The system mm-hmm. is so rigged so that only people either with a lot of money or with access to a lot of money can even begin to play in the field of the highest pinnacles of power in this country. Now, that is the opposite of a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. That is a government of a few of the people, by a few of the people, for a few of the people. And so I have two choices. I can, you know, put my tail between my legs and slouch away and say, you know, it's just locked up. Or I can try to practice what I preach, which is to honestly stand on the idea that, as we all know the line, uh, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And but we have to bend the arc. And I get a lot of inspiration from history. Uh, we answered slavery with abolition, and we answered the institutional suppression of women with the women's suffragist movement. They answered the Gilded Age with the establishment of the labor movement. They answered the uh, <clears throat> segregation in the American South and the institutionalized suppression of Black people with the civil rights movement. And I see it simply as our turn. And that's what I tell my audience anytime I'm out there speaking. It's our turn now. It's our turn now. Surely the abolitionists had tough days. 
I mean, look at those movements. Look at the despair. Look at how much people had to struggle and sacrifice. You know, people these days, we've, we've become too soft. Everybody's so traumatized. You think the people who w- walked across the bridge at Selma were not traumatized? We have to toughen up. And I think that this generation um, is open to hearing that because the system has infantilized us. The, the system has uh, convinced people that they're powerless, but we're only powerless until we pierce the illusion. You know, we need a revolution at the ballot box. And if we want this country to change, we need to wage that revolution at the ballot box. And it's sort of period, end of story. If you want it, you can have it, but not by just hanging out at home or in your, you know, Twitter account. Speaking of kind of like real life world experiences um, that toughen people up, you posted on Twitter, uh, gosh, a couple of years ago now about an experience. Your father took you to Vietnam when you were, I think, 13, you said? Yeah, yeah. Uh, can you tell, that's uh, in, that's wild. Can you tell us about that experience? Well, what that was like for you to first see all, firsthand? My father was like a cross between William Kunstler and Zorba the Greek. Uh, he was just an amazing <laughs> character. So I came home one night from the seventh grade, and in my civics class, the teacher had told us, and this was what they were all saying at that time. It was called the domino theory. So the teacher mm-hmm. had told us, sure. so I informed my parents, right? I informed my parents <laughs> what I had learned at school that day. And I had learned that if we didn't fight the communists in Vietnam, that we would be fighting them on the shores of Hawaii. Now, as I was explaining this to my parents, I saw my mother kind of, you know, putting her hand over her eyes like, oh, this is, uh uh-oh. And my father's face (laughs) is like turning white. And my father jumps up from the table and he says, that's it. God damn it. The military industrial complex is not going to eat my children's brains. Sweetheart, he called my mother, get the visas. We're going to Vietnam. And that's who my father was. And my mother was this, oh, Sam, oh, Sam. And yet she did it. I mean, they had an amazing, uh, they had an amazing uh, partnership that way. So when we got there, um, it was 1965. You could still, planes still landed inside Saigon. It was a battlefield five miles out. Uh, So certainly within, in Saigon, it was a very tense uh, atmosphere. Um, and I remember my father showing us a wall that had bullet holes. And he told us about war. And he told us about where those bullets came from. And, you know, that was one of really many experiences. We also visited the Soviet Union when I was a child. We were behind the Iron Curtain. And even at home, you know, if we would be out and there, let's say we were out late at night. We had gone to the 7-Eleven, right, to get my mother wanted some milk or something. And there would be someone, an old man or an old woman, who would be sweeping the floor. My father would say, kids, stop for a second. You see that person over there? Let me tell you, he'd say, their life is very hard. And I think that that was the the, the gift of my father, that he insisted that we pay attention. He insisted that we bear witness. There was a, a play by Arnold, um, 
uh, what was his name? Miller, Arthur Miller, uh, the death of a salesman. And there was a line in there where Linda says to her sons about their father, Willie Loman, attention must be paid. And my father said that that's, those were the two principles that he insisted on. Number one, have a spirit of adventure. And number two, attention must be paid. And that's, I think, really core for me. We are not paying attention. We're not paying attention. We've got the highest poverty rate of any advanced democracy, including child poverty rate. Over a third of American people report regularly skipping meals. Uh, you know, we, we have ubiquitous human suffering in our country today. And I'm old enough to remember a time when crisis for most people, just the general tone of the society, that while terrible things happened, a period of crisis was the exception and not the rule. And now, for far too many people, and for the world itself, it seems like a period of crisis, some crisis or another, is the rule and not the exception. And what I saw change in my life was I saw how many times the sort of permanent crisis that people were in was an example was a reflection of bad public policy that people didn't have health care or people couldn't work at just one job people couldn't always feed their children people were terrified to send their kids to school so attention must be paid and we must realize that the political system lulls us to sleep it numbs us it convinces us that they've got this handled they so don't have this handled I know. I I remember when uh, Biden won, a, a big fear of like mine, and a lot of people were like, "Oh, Trump's gone! Like mm-hmm. now we can just like, what's what's the 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 phrase? Like now we can just drink our mimosas, yeah, exactly. like we can go back to sleep, yeah. sort of thing." Yeah, I always yeah. say, "Yeah, go yeah, to brunch." Well, yeah, yeah, I always say, "You can't wage a revolution over white wine and brie." <laughs> that's, that's true. Yeah. So, do you think it was a lot of those experiences that kind of? Because you would say you're you kind of have like an anti-war worldview, right? Do you think sort of seeing the world and seeing these like like Vietnam uh, kind of informed that? Then? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And being in societies that you know where I saw up close and personal um, dangers and constrictions and limitations in people's lives that we don't have here. Now, I'm not naive, and I'm sure you're not either. We now have our own sets of limitations that that are (laughs) deeply concerning. But growing up, you know, I had an experience. It would have been, I guess it would have been in the 60s, we went hungry. And hungry was still behind the Iron Curtain. And so I'm a teenager, right? It was probably that same trip to Vietnam. Or if it wasn't, it was right around then because they used to take us traveling a lot in the summer. And there was this young man who had been our guide. And my father was an immigration lawyer. And this young man had taken care of us and he'd been very nice. And I saw my father slip his card into this young man's hand. As, as we left, I saw him slip his card into the young man's hand and say, you make it out of here and I'll take care of you from there. And I saw the tears in that man's eyes as he looked at my father. So my father being an immigration lawyer and then my brother being an immigration lawyer and so much experience of that, I was very aware of the plight of the immigrants. And um, 
most of them were in my own family, what my own grandparents had uh, sought to escape in coming here. As far as our audience is concerned, what like what do you want them to take away from like your worldview, what your your yeah, how your politics operate in the in the the, the current landscape? Uh, uh, what do you want our audience to know about you as a as a candidate and as a as a person? Well, <clears throat> what I want your audience to know is what I want any audience to know. I I don't have a different message depending on what the demographic is. You know, no matter what the demographic is, then there's a hyphen after it, and then there's the word American. I'm not talking to a particular uh, part of America. I'm talking to a particular place in our consciousness, in our conscience, in our in our hearts, really. I think America has deeply swerved uh, from a, a, a set of public policies that reflect the better angels of our nature. I think there is an ideal, not that we have ever fully manifested. Nobody's naive enough to think that we have. But it has always been our North Star. And that's that we would be a country where anybody had a fair shot. And we today are not a country where we can honestly say that. An ever-shrinking group of people have easy access to health care, easy access to education, easy access to economic opportunity. So no, I don't think the problem is that some people can make money. The problem is how many people never have a chance to. And that is not a government of the people, by the people, for the people. And the Declaration of Independence says that if the government, which was instituted to secure our rights to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness, which in today's language would mean self-actualization, be whoever you want to be, do whatever you want to do. Uh, spread your wings, go for it. And, and as long as you don't hurt anybody, good on you. That's the American ideal. And the Declaration of Independence says that if government is not doing its job, that it is the right of the people to alter that or to abolish it. Now, I'm not suggesting that we abolish it, but course correct it and alter it. You better believe it. And that's what the uh, the suffragists did. And that's what the abolitionists did. And that's what the civil rights movement did. And that's what the labor unions did. And are doing now, by the way. I mean, the the outside strategy is magnificent. You know, I just got back from Detroit today. You know, what's going on on the UAW and Sean Fain. It's magnificent. But we need to... Sean Fain is incredible. He's like my political role model right now. His spine. He's incredible. His spine. And that's what we need, particularly on the left. You know, when he... That moment when Salanta sent, sent him their proposal and he just tore it up and threw it into the wastebasket. <laughs> That's what we need in America today. When the big three said, oh no, we can't do those things that you say you want because then we wouldn't be competitive. And he stood up to them and he did not acquiesce. And they got those contracts. We need that same spine electorally. And we need a president who has that kind of spine. We need a president who is an advocate of the people and who is willing to name names and is willing to recognize and to articulate that we have a matrix of corporate overlords. You know, uh, the institutionalized greed of insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies, big food companies, big chemical companies, big agricultural companies, gun manufacturers, big oil and defense contractors. They are at this point a matrix of corporate tyranny, economic tyranny. And the American government, which should be an advocate for the people against overreach by those forces, is bought and sold by them. 
I mean, they 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 are so acquiescent to their donor class at this point, particularly since Citizens United, that they regularly do more in their policymaking uh, decisions to serve the short-term profit maximization goals of those corporations than to serve the safety, health, and the well-being of the American people. That is the status quo at this point, and the status quo will not disrupt itself. The only chance we have now is for the people to step in, which is what happened in all those other movements. The people need to step in. We need to wage a revolution at the ballot box. And um, if we do, uh, we will have success. But we have to have the courage and we have to have the spine and we have the chutzpah to do so. Um, If we're talking directly to our audience or things that our audience might care about, I did have kind of a a little bit of a left field question. And that is, um, what do you think uh, talk to us about Elon's takeover of Twitter and kind of the content that we're seeing run rampant on the platform, uh, which has been obviously very bad. And, uh, you know, what would your administration do, if anything, to kind of combat this kind of speech on big tech platforms? Well, we all know what the problem is. <laughs> That's that there is almost an insurmountable problem in that we have, uh, you know, right to free speech in this country. We have the First Amendment in this country. I assume that's what you're talking about, just how violent, disinformative it is so many times. Is that what you're talking about? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, well, you know, the issue is we don't want, you know, who who's going to be your, you know, the whole idea of surveillance. Uh, so you want the government to be making those decisions. You want Mark Zuckerberg to be making those decisions. You want Elon Musk to be making those decisions. I mean, it's a tough one. Uh, it's a tough one because on one hand, uh, you say, no, I don't think anybody should be making those decisions and anybody should be saying whatever they want to say. And then I remember what Sasha Baron Cohen said uh, a couple years ago when he said, well, if Hitler were alive today, he would be taking up 30-second ads on uh, Facebook. So I, I think you want to be very careful with uh, uh, regulations on uh, anything to do with free speech because – when it comes to certain kind of hate speech, absolutely. But when it comes to information about certain things, I think we've all begun to shudder a little bit over the last few years at the thought that some information is being suppressed for no other reason than that some corner of officialdom doesn't like it. Listen, I see it in my, you know, what I was mentioning about my own career. That's a form of disinformation. When, when they say that the president has no opponents, and I'm running, and I've been running since March, that's disinformation. When they say only, Dean Phillips is the only opponent, that's disinformation. So I'm particularly, um, I'm particularly sensitive to it when I see stuff in the media and I go, wow. Or the way they cancel people, the narratives, that the smears. Um, but sometimes in life, there are not specific bullets, you know, silver bullets, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to do that. There are some things, the answer to which can only be an ethical revolution. Can I get um, a little more specific then and say, I'm sure you're aware um, that Elon just recently, as the time of of this recording, just yesterday, I believe, was uh, sued Media Matters for their reporting on um, kind of anti-Semitic and hate speech showing up next to advertisers. And now Elon is saying this is uh, misinformation and then what they're doing is illegal. Do you have an opinion on that? Or is is this real or is Elon just kind of being a bully? I saw would you please explain it to me again? I saw some reference to it. Sure. It's what next to what? 
so uh, Media Matters has has made some claims um, through their methodology. I think is kind of where the, where the crux of the disagreement between them and, and X comes in. But essentially, they're they're saying that well, uh, advertisements from big companies like Apple and IBM and uh, Paramount and some others are showing up next to you know neo Nazi content, and they released a report. And anybody who uses the platform knows that this is happening. Um, I guess Elon is saying that they were kind of falsifying their way that they, their methodology for finding this and is suing them saying that they're just trying to essentially disparage Twitter or X and um, scare off advertisers to damage them. Well, I, I'm, I'm confused here. Why are they putting up neo-Nazi content to begin with? <laughs> that would be the users of of Twitter that are no longer being, um, I guess, monitored or suspended, or they're allowed to kind of monetize uh, on this kind of content that wasn't done in the past. So if you are, for instance, you are able to monetize your Twitter account um, if you pay into this program on, on Twitter and you can say more or less whatever you want now that Elon is in charge under the guise of free speech. But what ended up happening effectively is that uh, lots of objectively neo-Nazi content is now being monetized and some of these larger companies ads are showing up on this now. Oh, that's so disgusting. Yeah. Well, you and I were talking about disinformation. Disinformation is different than hate speech. Neo-Nazi material to me is hate speech. And no, I do not believe it should be allowed on, on these platforms. Okay. So, so you're maybe not, so, so you're maybe not like a free speech absolutist in, no, in terms no, of like, but, okay. Okay. Yeah. No, no, I'm not. It's like I said, you know, Hitler would have been taking um, 30 second ads out on Facebook. And when I heard Sasha Baron Cohen said that, I, I was like, no. I mean, I, I, I saw uh, something on the internet just the other day, which is Nazis with uh, huge swastikas on their flags uh, marching down a street in um, some city in Wisconsin. Oh, yeah, that was uh, Madison. Yeah, I recently. believe Madison, Wisconsin. Um, yeah. And I saw some of the Nazis who were giving the Nazi salutes on overpasses in Florida. But if you're talking about neo-Nazi content online, then you're talking about them actually saying the things that are neo-Nazi, which would include uh, genocidal uh, uh, comments about Jews or blacks or anyone else, correct? I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, say that again. The last part? Well, yes. if, if there's when you say there's neo-Nazi content online, then I'm assuming that the neo-Nazi content that's not just pictures would actually include uh, genocidal comments oh, absolutely. Uh, regarding Jews. Or, yeah, no, I do not believe that should be, a, uh, should be allowed online, actually. I don't have a problem with there being a line there. Great. But, um, but so having said that, I'd like to say one thing. It's not easy. And I can see some real conversations going on. Well, does this cross the line or not? And I could see some real conversations about um, at what point does deep criticism uh, turn over into dangerous hate talk. But I think that the Nazis in world history have proven enough uh, to the <laughs> world uh, that we have every reason uh, to believe that uh, lines uh, should be drawn. Great. Um, so to to kind of like wrap this up, uh, it, it feels like I, like after talking to you uh, and seeing you talk for a while, um, 
a lot of what you say just feels really reasonable and practical, but you're often painted, especially in like 2020, you were painted as a very like fringe, like weirdo kind of candidate. Um, I, I would love to know why um, you think that happens and if there's any way to get uh, buy-in from like mainstream media for third-party candidates. Well, first of all, if you think about the things I stand for that we talked about here today, and which, by the way, were the things I was actually saying four years ago, then you understand right. why they would create that narrative. She's kooky. She's crazy. She's a crystal lady. She's anti-science. <laughs> And then it got worse. She's bad to gay people. She told gay people to pray away their illness, that they got illness because she didn't, um, yeah, they, they didn't pray enough. Or uh, illness is not real, which is a line that they took out of, completely out of context. Or if I, if I say fuck at the office, like any man would do, that uh, the man is just, you know, he had a day, but Williamson is, you know, a total crazy woman. I mean, all of that stuff. Can I ask you a quick question on that? There's a quote that I read and I wanted to know if it was true or not that you, uh, cause I love the quote and I hope it's true. Did you call yourself a bitch for God? <laughs> yeah, I did. I think many, many years ago. Oh, hell yeah. Okay. <laughs> I think I, I love that. I, I think uh, well, it, what happened, what happened was it was an event. And remember I was a non-denominational minister of sorts and I had said, we're going to have a prayer at the end. And all these people said, no, we can't have a prayer at the end. And um, I said, no, I think it's, you know, I think it would be reasonable for us to have a prayer at the end of that event. And somebody said, well, she's being really bitchy and insistent. And I said, well, I'm a bitch about it. At least I'm a bitch for God. So (laughs) 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 probably not one of my, you know, not a moment that I would have preferred (laughs) to live on in history, but it it did. I love it. I'm I'm so happy to hear that compared. Well, you know, I don't. Uh, I'm not, but I'm glad you are. Uh, at, least, <laughs> at least that one, you know, for a long time I thought, did I say that? And then I thought, well, maybe I said that, but wouldn't that chip But yeah, no, it's, uh, I, I think to to go back to the question, yeah, so do you, do you think there's kind of like a way to overcome this sort of narrative with media? And and maybe like the, 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 the narrative that a lot of third-party candidates typically get? Because a lot of third-party candidates are typically portrayed kind of like kooky. Well, first of all, I remember I'm not a third party candidate. Right, of course. Not 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 says like imply you were, but just I feel like you I mean you're not acknowledged no, a, exactly. a lot. So right. it's really not about being third party, it's about not being a member of their club. So it doesn't right. even help to be in the Democratic Party as long as you're not in their club. Their idea of qualification is that someone is qualified to maintain and perpetuate the system as it is. Right. They say we should only consider qualified for the presidency. Someone who has spent their career driving the car that drove us into this ditch, that they're the only ones who should be considered qualified to drive us out of the ditch. I see it completely differently. I, I, my qualifications are not in maintaining and perpetuating the system, but in disrupting the system. And, you know, it's interesting because if you look at the Constitution, Qualification to be president or that you have to have been born here, you have to be 35 or older, and you have to have lived here for 14 years. The founders did not say that in order to be president, you had to have been a senator or a mayor or a governor or a congressman, because they were leaving it to every generation to determine for itself 
the qualifications, the, the skill set, the expertise that that generation feels is most relevant in that time. I think at this time, uh, we don't need another technocrat. We need a visionary. And I'm not the greatest visionary in the United States, but I'm the only one running for the Democratic nomination for president. We don't need another car mechanic. Washington has plenty of political car mechanics. That's not the problem. The problem is we're on the wrong road. And Franklin Roosevelt said that the primary responsibility of the presidency, he said, is not administrative. The primary responsibility of the presidency is moral leadership. Someone who actually has a vision for this country beyond just Fordham to corporate forces. That's what we need. Okay. Uh, well, I think that's a good good place to to wrap it up if you guys do. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Marianne. We really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Uh, where do you want to direct you. the uh, people? Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, Our website is Marianne2024.com. And uh, if people do feel... Uh, you know, if you look at Marianne2024.com, there's an entire a long section of policies. Um, if people feel moved by this, follow us on social media, spread the word, uh, sign up to volunteers, send some cash if you can. And uh, we can pull off something amazing here. But we have to be very intentional about ending the aberrational chapter of neoliberal trickle-down economics, having an economic U-turn and beginning a whole new chapter of American history. And I think that there are enough of us who want to do that. We just have to decide to do it and get very, very busy. Well, wonderful. Amazing. Well, thank you so much again, Marianne Williams. Thank you. Uh, uh, please check thank out her you. website, check out her socials, and we appreciate you coming on and taking the time to speak with us. Thank you so much. Have a nice night. Yeah, have a good one.